0: My name is Shane A Bassett, the movie analyst, your host, and hello, welcome to a bonus edition of Mickey Rourke Talk. On this episode, I will discuss the 1986 release, Nine and a Half Weeks, a well-known and notorious movie that is not for everybody, that's for sure, but has stood the resistance from many to still exist in pop culture today. So Mickey made a big, big splash in Body Heat. That was 1981. Also, The Pope of Greenwich Village, uh, Year of the Dragon. uh, But Angel Heart, 1987, and potentially even more controversial than Angel Heart, Wild Orchid, were both yet to come. Nine and a half weeks, however, it was very controversial. Uh, It was released in America, February 1986. It was released in Australia, June 1986. Nine and a Half Weeks was a massive hit in France. In fact, all over Europe, Russia, you name it. Uh, Here in Australia, it was definitely a box office bonanza. Uh, It was released in full, rated R glory, and it took until it was released on VHS in the US to become a hit. Now, without any further ado, let's talk Mickey Rourke. It is. Joe Cocker, You Can Leave Your Hat On, a very famous song from the soundtrack of Nine and a Half Weeks. Uh, In fact, the soundtrack is amazing. It is still popular to this day on Spotify. I have a copy on vinyl, which I cherish, and I'll talk a little bit more about soundtrack and songs a little bit later. But first, regarding Nine and a Half Weeks, let's discuss the director. Adrian Lyne. Of course, he directed Flashdance, one of my favourite early 80s dance movies, if you could call it a dance movie. Indecent Proposal from the 90s was very controversial at the time of release. It had Robert Redford, Demi Moore, Woody Harrelson in it. Uh, Indecent Proposal is not talked about much these days, but it is a big film. It had impact in the 90s and uh, was a global box office hit. Fatal Attraction, well, that was also a big hit for Adrian Lyon as director. Uh, It is its own juggernaut and deserves its own podcast. I love Fatal Attraction. Foxes with Jodie Foster from 1980 uh, was pretty good. Unfaithful from 2002 with Diane Lane and Richard Gere. Uh, That was an Adrian Lyon movie nobody expected was going to be that great. It actually pushed some boundaries. There's a sex in the cinema scene that uh, is very, very popular amongst certain avid moviegoers. Uh, Indeed. And uh, Richard Gere and Diane Lane, old friends, their chemistry in Unfaithful is second to none. Uh, Lolita was another movie that Adrian line directed it was an adaptation of the uh, 1960s uh, stanley kubrick original a little bit ill-fated remake uh, but extremely well made touchy subject matter that even in the 90s just doesn't fly uh, good acting though from jeremy irons and dominic swain frank langella melanie griffith yeah lolita 1997 uh, You may take or leave that one, as you may take or leave nine and a half weeks. Many people have left it over the years, but also it is a huge, huge cult, sort of a cult hit uh, among some circles. And as I mentioned, in Europe and France, it's it's still very popular to this day. It's one of those movies that is timeless. Mickey Rourke himself is still very popular, and as he should be in many overseas countries. Uh, Adrian Lyne's original of Nine and a Half Weeks, his cut was reported to be, you know, something like five hours long. But is it really? I mean, I'm aware of a few deleted scenes, but three hours worth? That could be one of those urban movie myths that you hear uh, and are not true. Nine and a Half Weeks began as a Columbia TriStar movie. That's who was filming it. They owned Coca-Cola at the time. Uh, But MGM ended up releasing it. I'm pretty sure that maybe Columbia thought it was too controversial. There's that word again. Uh, And Tristar just brushed it to avoid any projected drama um, concerning the content down the track. Funny thing is, uh, you can see a flashing Sony sign, which is Columbia, of course, Uh, a neon Sony sign, just after the uh, famous striptease scene from that song. ...that you just heard by Joe Coco. We'll talk about that soon enough. Well, the storyline itself is tough. It really is. But it's based on a 1978 novella. A book by none other than Elizabeth McNeil. But her real name is Ingeborg Day. That was the author's name. She changed it to Elizabeth McDeal... ...because it is based on facts, ...based on things that she experienced... Uh, I used to own the film, TV, uh, sorry, the film tie-in version of this novel, uh, and it was pretty good. From memory, I remember reading it, but uh, fortunately, I don't have it anymore. You can still get it; it's quite expensive. It's a, it's around if you want to look it up online to buy a copy of the novel. It is much more darker, heavier, uh, and very, very nasty at times. Uh, the movie, as controversial as it is. Too many, it is still very toned down to the actual book. There's touches of sexual imprisonment in this. I must say that you will go down to a a lower level at times watching this, but the director, I think he probably wanted to convey worse things than actually got filmed, or that could be part of those deleted scenes I was talking about. Supposed to be a romance, and it is. In some respects, the story is one of despair though, a love story between two people who seem perfect opposites to begin with, but over the nine and a half week dalliance, things go abruptly out of control. unusual different kind of songs that appear on the soundtrack uh, that was Corey Hart singing Eurasian Eyes now a brief rundown of the story his name is John Grey where does that sound familiar? well we'll talk a little bit about that later as well Mickey Rock plays John Grey, a Wall Street high flyer who has a chance meeting with Elizabeth, an art gallery dealer of acquisitions and sales in New York Firstly, they meet only with a glance and a smile, but on a second occasion, they are together almost immediately when bumping into each other at a market. His manipulation with stories and situations, she just can't resist. Uh, She falls under John's spell fast. From the first date, they hang out in this isolated harbour house, which is very tough to watch right from the beginning. Because uh, John likes to practice to be a maid at the Holiday Inn. There's also a scene on the Ferris wheel where uh, John leaves Elizabeth stuck right at the top and then walks away with the guy who's operating the Ferris wheel. Just lets her sitting there and hanging at that very high altitude. And I would be peeking as much as she does in the movie. Uh, also, he asks her to take off her dress and let him blindfold her immediately when they arrive at her house for the very first time and there is also someone else in the building. Uh, he feeds her food in the kitchen with her eyes closed, that's a famous scene, uh, calls her out for snooping when he when she's waiting in his apartment, calling her a nosy parker. It's all happening, it's all happening. There is a condensed uh, final 20-25 minutes and You can see that there's definite cuts and edits. However, don't expect to be this heart-beating romance magic. It's no pretty woman. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about what happens in the film, about certain scenes, also about the co-stars. But really, it's a movie that you probably have to decide and watch for yourself. The effect it has had on so many other movies, you probably didn't know, but there is. When This movie was released and it became such a hit. There were so many like uh, knockoff, spin off, sort of sex dramas that were all based around forbidden love affairs, such as Nine and a Half Weeks. So I'm going to list some of those shortly as well. And there were two sequels well, kind of two sequels to Nine and a Half Weeks there was a sequel and a prequel. I'll discuss those as well. That's a little bit of the song Let It Go by Luba. She also has a much better song than that one coming up shortly and it appears at the start of Nine and a Half Weeks. That one you just heard, Let It Go, features at the end credits of Nine and a Half Weeks. Still not a bad song, but you'll hear shortly why the second Luba song is the better Luba song. Some co-stars of Mickey Rourke in Nine and a Half Weeks. Let's begin with a few cameos. Uncle Benny from Lethal Weapon 4 is in it. He's worth mentioning because uh, he also appeared in The Corrupter. Cameo by Ronnie Wood of The Rolling Stones. He's in a party scene, of course. And Julian Beck, very scary man who was in Poltergeist 2. He's a guest at dinner in nine and a half weeks. Some bigger co-stars here are Margaret Witten. She's in Ironweed, uh, The Secret of My Success with uh, Muckle J. Fox. Very funny in that one. But in my world, I know her as Rachel Phelps, the owner of the Cleveland Indians in Major League. Margaret Witten as Molly. Not in this film much, but uh, she goes on to a huge career. Lovely, lovely-looking person as well. Big, big smile I love to s- just stare at. She's cool. Uh, David Margiles is in this, the late David Margiles. You might know him as the Ghostbusters Mayor. Christine Baranski is in this. She plays Thea, a small role, uh, but what a top actor. Uh, so many credits and recognisable as soon as you see her. Raina Skeen. Now, there's an actor I hadn't heard of in a, on a regular basis, but he has a very funny moment as the flower delivery boy. If, you, if you've seen Nine and a Half Weeks, you'll see the first time that Elizabeth gets flowers from John. They're delivered to the art, the very nice art gallery in New York that Elizabeth works at. And Rainer Skeen plays the delivery boy. He is also in the Mickey Rourke movie, Johnny Handsome, a film that we will be talking about in a future episode of Mickey Rourke Talk. Now, for the main co-star here, of course, is Kim Basinger as Elizabeth. Now, just to... Public service announcement here. It's Bay Singer, not Bassinger. The amount of times that I hear people say Kim Bassinger, I just want to run over to them and tackle them. I really do. It's Bay Singer, friends, not Bassinger. Practice. Bay Singer, Kim Bay Singer. Very good. I don't want to hear Bassinger ever, ever again. She's an Oscar winner. Come on, best supporting actress in LA Confidential. She was also a former Bond girl. Uh, opposite Sean Connery as 007 in Never Say Never Again. A couple other movies I really enjoyed Kim Basinger in was No Mercy with another one of my favorites Richard Gere. She has a very funny role in Wayne's World too and The Getaway. When she was married to when Kim Basinger was married to Alec Baldwin, they did a couple of movies together. And one of my favorites that they did it called The Getaway, which is a remake of the classic, original Sam Peckinpah movie, The Getaway, with Steve McQueen and Ally McGraw. So, Kim Basinger basically plays the Ally McGraw part. Funnily enough, when Mickey and Kim were filming Nine and a Half Weeks, I believe the director, Adrian Lyon, who we spoke about earlier, pretty much told them to stay apart and forced them not to be together when not acting on screen so they wouldn't get to know each other. There are circumstances in their relationship in the movie there that probably don't want to know each other too well, although the chemistry between the two is fantastic, and I'll talk a little bit more about that shortly. Uh, It was also believed that Kim Basinger was quoted as saying at the time in the 80s, or sometime after it, when she was being interviewed and talking about Nine and a Half Weeks, that she said kissing Mickey Rourke was like kissing an ashtray. Now, whether that's a true quote or not, I'm not sure. And you would have thought they'd never work together again. Although a lot of water under the bridge, they have appeared in two more movies together. The Informers from 2008 and Black November out of 2012. Two more movies we'll be talking about in future episodes of Mickey Rourke Talk. And quite significantly... Kim Basinger appears in the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy. Again, I will talk a little bit more about the legacy of Fifty Shades and how it connects. Very much connects to Nine and a Half Weeks. More on that later. That is John Taylor, I Do What I Do, the theme, the official theme from Nine and a Half Weeks. Uh, as it's called on the soundtrack, it is the theme of Nine and a Half Weeks. Not a bad song, don't, like, don't mind his voice, but uh, there are better songs coming up that we will hear samples of from that soundtrack that I can never get enough of. Does Mickey Rourke suit the role of John Gray in Nine and a Half Weeks? That is the question. In this era of the 80s, nobody else could be as permissive as John is. And seriously, yes, Mickey exactly suits the role. He is kind of fantastic and gripping in a mysterious way. A gorgeous man at this time indeed. That's no denying. It's no wonder Mickey was reportedly offered pretty much every leading role in a big commercial movie around at that time. Movies that he knocked back, that he could have been in. And there's a lot more, but here's a few I wanted to highlight because they are all, they are all brilliant. Uh, I mean, you can think about what could have been, but these movies are all brilliant. Mickey could have been in them. Beverly Hills Cop. Yes, Beverly Hills Cop. But that that one is well-known to have gone through a lot of different people before Eddie Murphy got the role and never looked back. Uh, Sylvester Stallone originally was going to be in Beverly Hills Cop, but that movie turned into Cobra. Again, that is another podcast all on its own. Mickey Rourke also turned down Platoon. Oliver Stone's Platoon. It won Best Picture. Another best picture winner. Rain Man. Mickey turned back turned down. Dead Poets Society and The Big Chill, two classic films. Mickey Rourke, turn those down. Look, he had his reasons and I wouldn't want to change his career, his films for anything. The good and the bad, they're all got something in them and Mickey is esteemed and brilliant and gives it everything 99% of the time. In nine and a half weeks, his connection as an actor, with Kim Basinger on screen is, in my view, realistic. It's hard to watch, as I've mentioned. Uh, I think he has fallen in love with Elizabeth. That's the, the vibe you get from John. But what a messed up jerk John is too. He does things on his own terms at all times. But on screen when they're together and they're laughing and smiling and having fun, they do actually have some fun times in this. They're never really pushing too hard to make the passion work. I think that's because they are the correct actors in these roles and they also believe in their characters. I'm not sure that they would have been paid huge amounts of money to be in these roles. Maybe they were. I don't know their actors' fees. But whatever it was, they were earning every cent. And many of Kim's reactions to me are definitely spontaneous. You can tell. She sort of jumps and giggles around and doesn't know what he's going to do uh, half the time, and I think that reaction reactions you get from her for that reason means to me that yes, they might have been separated when not when the cameras weren't rolling. And Kim Basinger did not really know what Mickey was going to do next. He may have veered off the script. I don't know, but they they work. At every second of this movie, you do never, you never disbelieve their connection. That was the song Saviour by Walter Grennan. Bit of a reggae-inspired tune there, and it appears in the movie During the Markets where Elizabeth and John talk to each other for the first time and uh, is, well, Elizabeth is looking at some obscure little objects including a chicken, a wind-up chicken that lays eggs. Yes, and uh, that is quite enticing in its own way because John has a great line that he uses concerning the chicken when they meet. Okay, so that's it. Uh, I'm not a big fan of reggae, but that song isn't so bad. They are at the band that are playing at the market in New York. Okay, so clothes that Mickey wears are very important in all his movies to help his character as far as I'm concerned. They're traits, in my opinion uh and in this it's all relatively similar fashions he wears sharp suits trench coats black t-shirts white shirts ties that are gray or black and a black v-neck long sleeve shirt at one point pretty much when he is in the observation mode of watching elizabeth do the striptease to you can leave your hat on could mickey play another role in this movie well not really There are no other roles. Uh, There's no other roles in this with as much pizzazz uh, or as significant enough to be worthy of Mickey's excellent talent. There's small roles, but he is the natural leader lead in this. Would Would the movie be made today? That's a really good question I'm asking myself. Uh, I don't believe it would be, not in this format anyway. Uh, The Hullabaloo of Fifty Shades of Grey, uh, when that film was released in 2015, uh, that also began, of course, as a novel. Uh, It was massive. Uh, The trio of movies of Fifty Shades were all released simultaneously year after year. They set the box office and social media alight. That goes without saying. Uh, Their cultural landmarks, for its time, and they were a big deal, and they're a big deal for kids, teenagers. They were getting in to watch these. This movie. Uh, there was no social media when Nine and a Half Weeks was released. Obviously, that's uh, that's no surprise or no revelation. But that said, Fifty Shades of Grey appealed to a generation who have never heard of Nine and a Half Weeks, and. Fifty Shades relies heavily in referencing Nine and a Half Weeks in multiple facets, including the name, including the name Grey, Mr. Grey. And, as I mentioned earlier, the casting of Kim Basinger in the Fifty Shades trilogy. Some of the movies at the time that were inspired, in inverted commas, somewhat inspired by Nine and a Half Weeks, were... Nine and a Half Ninjas. Yes, there was a movie, a sex martial arts movie, comedy, basically, called Nine and a Half Ninjas. There was a triple X porn film called Ten and a Half Weeks. No, I haven't seen it, but I am fully aware of it. One of my favorites, though, is Two Moon Junction from 1988. If, for some reason, you like Nine and a Half Weeks as much as I do, check out Two Moon Junction. Uh, It is spectacular in every way, erotic soap opera, melodrama at its best. It's got Sherrilyn Fenn and Richard Tyson, Louise Fletcher, a young Mia Jovovich. She's only a child in this, but you can tell she's going to go a very long way in her career. Uh, The music's good. Some of the lines are good, but check out Two Moon Junction if you, even if you haven't seen Nine and a Half Weeks, it's probably a bit more accessible, and it's not as extreme. If that makes sense, it is with some of the sex, but not with with the violence or the tragedy. Warm Summer Rain from nineteen eighty nine is another one I highly recommend with Kelly Lynch. Very difficult movie to find. If you have a copy congratulations, you're one of the few. I have it on VHS, I do not have it on DVD, it is not streaming as far as I'm aware, it's very hard to find, MGM did release a DVD copy of it, which is very expensive online, but get it if you're keen, warm summer rain, great erotic melodrama soap opera, just what the doctor ordered. And Kelly Lynch, of course, is a friend of Mickey Rourke's, has been in Desperate Hours, 1990, and Passion Play. She was in that with Mickey Rourke and uh, Megan Fox and Bill Murray. Actually, Kelly's husband, Mitch Glazer, directed Passion Play. Uh, I like that. Megan Fox has wings in it. She's an angel. And uh, Mickey kind of helps her out and saves her. But I don't want to give too much away. And Bill Murray is not funny in it. He's very serious in it. Passion Play, another movie like Desperate Hours that we'll be talking about in future episodes of Mickey Rock Talk. Uh, you will see Nine and a Half Weeks had a prequel and a sequel. Firstly, I'll talk about the prequel, unofficial prequel. It's called The First Nine and a Half Weeks, starring Paul Mccurio, Australian actor, Best known for Strictly Ballroom. Oh, yeah. That Paul Mercurio was in Nine and a Half Weeks. But he was no stranger to sex movies. He was in Exit to Eden, a sex comedy directed by Gary Marshall, had Rosie O'Donnell in it and Dan Aykroyd in leather. Yes, they both wore leather. Very, very tight leather. And their bodies, well, you know, things are always tight on bodies like those two have. At the time... At the time, this was the 90s, I'm pretty sure they're both a lot fitter these days. I hope so, and I do like them both, no disrespect. Paul Mercurio was in Exit to Eden, but he was in the first nine and a half weeks, which really is a loose, loose rip-off of certain aspects of nine and a half weeks. It also has Malcolm McDowell in it, and an actress who I thought would have gone on and done more, but unfortunately... Very few movies after this. Clara Bella. That was 1998 that movie was released. I think Nine and a Half Weeks still had its notoriety 10 years after, but no one was interested in seeing the first Nine and a Half Weeks movie. They were definitely not interested in seeing another Nine and a Half Weeks, although it did okay business and was theatrically released in Europe. Of course it was. Another nine and a half weeks, or Love in Paris, the alternate title, Love in Paris, that was from 1997. It co-starred Mickey with Angie Everhart. Kim Basinger did not return as Elizabeth, although Elizabeth is mentioned briefly. I will do a whole conversation about Another Nine and a Half Weeks in a future episode of Mickey Rog Talk. Thunder. You know the so many people living in this house, and I don't even know the name. You know the so many people living in this house. That was the unmistakable voice of Annie Lennox from the Eurythmics and their song, The City Never Sleeps. That particular tune plays in a famous scene of Nine and a Half Weeks concerning a slide projector and uh, Elizabeth sitting in like a back room or a basement of her Spring Street art gallery and watching slides of artwork. Now, a slide projector if you were not around in the 80s and 90s, is something that used to beam light and a picture onto the wall, onto a white wall, and you'd have a little uh, remote control with a red button, a little square thing with a long cord connected to this projector. Now, it wasn't a projector like at the cinema, and I'm only explaining this for people who don't know what a slide projector is. It it wasn't a moving picture. It was a still it's like looking at photos on the wall, I guess you could call it. Whatever, I'm probably standing like an idiot now because you all know what slide projectors are. Anyway, Kim Basing his character, <laughs> Elizabeth, had this long cord and a little square thing with a red button and she'd press it each time she wanted to look at a different picture on the wall. Anyway, she starts um, pleasuring and touching herself and the projector goes faster and faster and faster and faster uh, to that song by Annie Lennox and the rhythmics. Ah uh, yes, unforgettable. There are plenty of unforgettable scenes in this movie and like I said before I'm not sure if this film was uh, done in sequence but the immediate chemistry that these two actors have with, with each other is quite astonishing uh, as apparently they were kept separated off camera so they didn't get to know each other. Quite stunning to know that i got to say about his apartment, John's apartment, which we go to in the film a few times. It's beautiful. It's all open. He has a banana lounge, a telescope. He has this top-range cassette stereo. I think that is pretty cool. But him him being a Wall Street broker uh, and top-notch Wall Street broker, making a lot of money apparently, we don't see him with a mobile phone, and yes, I'm pretty sure mobile phones were around then because Michael Douglas's character in Wall Street, Gordon Gecko, has one of those big bricks. Remember, uh, he and Charlie Sheen they have these big brick with a big antenna mobile phone. So this was all filmed around the same time. I would have thought that uh, John Gray would have had one of those big brick mobile phones. What else can I talk about? There's a riding crop scene where they're in a, a shop buying a riding crop and he's whip. John's whipping it around and Elizabeth's just sitting there watching the two men behind the counter, father and son. They don't say a word, but their eyebrows are being very raised. They're wearing it like a tweed jacket or something, you know. that's they, That's their style. There is a ice scene. The ice scene is fantastic and has been in so many other movies that it's been either ripped off or done as a joke. Fatal Instinct, if you have seen Fatal Instinct, which is a satire of uh, erotic thrillers, such as The Hen That Rocks the Cradle, Basic Instinct, Fatal Attraction and so forth, Fatal Instinct has a very humorous scene concerning the ice and the food scene, also in the ice scene is uh, well, how can I say this? I recently saw a movie called After We Fell, which is a, a millennial romantic uh, book series that have been turned into movies, and they're quite good. PG version of the nine and a half weeks ice scene is in After We Fell, which is the third movie in the series. Uh, yeah, interesting, but very PG. The kitchen food scene. Many people know this. Kitchen food scene. Are you hungry? Well, you might not be when you watch this. Mickey is shirtless in the kitchen and Kim Basing is wearing a shave coat, a white dressing gown, terry toweling thing, which I don't like, but it looks good on her and some really cool white socks. They don't stay dry or clean for long. That's all I've got to say about that. Certain foods get put into Elizabeth's mouth by John while she's blindfolded on the floor of the kitchen. They don't really eat, and eat, and eat any of it. They're just spitting it out and rubbing it all over the place, including honey, chillies, milk, I think champagne or some kind of uh, fizzy drink. Not sure what it was. It looked like champagne popping out of the bottle. Ah, yes, and cough medicine gets put into Elizabeth's mouth, all while she's blindfolded. She's laughing away, though, and it turns into a very, very sticky situation, pardon the pun. Another great scene is definitely the strip scene, but it's all downhill after the famous strip tease. It really is. It's all downhill. There is some beautiful songs in this i've played a couple already but my favorite is slave to love by brian ferry it is prominent in the movie it is a prominent song was a big hit on the charts uh it starts with john combing elizabeth's hair on the bed it ends with them going hammer and tong here's a bit of the song by the man with the pencil mustache mr brian ferry i mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Ryan Ferry doing A Slave to Love. What a terrific song. And a certain scene when it appears in the movie. Once seen, not forgotten. But the striptease with You Can Leave Your Hat On, another song, as I mentioned earlier, that is a chart topper. It's an unforgettable moment. It really is. But as mentioned, it's the beginning of the end when John... Makes her crawl. Scenes after the strip scene don't. I think a lot of people might turn the movie off after that. John makes her crawl, dropping money, expecting her to pick it up. And Elizabeth does at first because she loves him. But it's a horrible moment. Yes, it ends in laughter again. And they make up. John thinks he's funny. He's not. And he's not joking. You kind of get that a little bit more with the next really dumb thing that he does. And that is bring in a third person, blindfolds Elizabeth again, brings in a third person, a sex worker to touch her. John's not touching her. The sex worker is. And this is supposed to turn Elizabeth on. It does not. It does not. It's a test of some description. I cannot tell you what, but, uh, Yeah, it is a pretty horrendous 15 to 25 minutes towards the end of that film. And it's relevant to the movie. It's not just tacked on for the sake of it and it appeared in the book. But like I said, if that's the darkest moment or some of the darkest moments in the movie, such as another scene where Elizabeth is basically thrown onto a table, uh, clothes are ripped off by John and he has sex with her. Forceful at first, but she does encourage it and really draws him in halfway through. So what begins as something that probably should not happen and is not consent, turns into consent. Am I saying that's a good thing? No. But again, in the book and done in the movie with enough tact, not just to be there for the sake of it. Really, there's there's not a huge amount of nudity in this movie. If you're looking for nudity, there is nudity, but not a huge amount. And it's pretty much female, not a lot of Mickey. He's dressed basically all the time, except, like I said, he has his shirt off in the, in the kitchen. Uh, speaking of the kitchen, let's lighten the mood. This is the song that appears on the soundtrack when John is feeding Elizabeth all those different foods. And I always thought this was Devo, but it is not. It's a band called The New Beats and their novelty song, Bread and Butter. Ah yes, a little bit of that song goes a long way But in context to the kitchen scene, uh, it is perfect As I mentioned, I did not know that wasn't Devo for years I thought that was Devo It is not Devo, how about that Thankfully it is not Devo because they are a, a band I've always enjoyed And I would have thought I knew every one of their songs Although, even if you love a band, unless you are obsessed They always have songs That uh, slipped through the cracks May have appeared in movies that you don't know about Think of uh, so many different singers and bands That appear on soundtracks And that is the only way you can get their song Things are different now Of course Spotify has so much Apple Music and so forth But uh, yeah, back in the day Bands had songs that only appeared in soundtracks It still happens in some, some form or another these days But not always. They're usually easier to get. But uh, Bread and Butter by The New Beats, not one of my favourites on the soundtrack. As I have always said about that song, it's a novelty song. I'm going to talk a little bit about Mickey Rourke smoking. It's not unusual, is it? He smokes in... Well, pretty... Pretty keen to say that he actually smokes in every single movie. Although, there are others that he doesn't smoke in. You'll have to listen to previous episodes of Mickey Rourke Talk to find out what those are. But in this one, quite surprisingly, John only smokes for the first time, not until during the infamous striptease In his apartment, he sparks up at the one hour, 17 minute mark. Yeah, while he's watching Elizabeth do her thing. Joe Cocker Stance To the song By Joe Cocker He has an empty Ashtray In his apartment We talked about His apartment A little bit earlier It's empty There's no ash in it So Either he uses it And he cleans it Which is good You Don't want to leave Butts and ash In an ashtray In your house Couldn't think of Anything worse A very clean apartment Very 80s Yuppie apartment Beautiful Actually Really is. There's a scene where Elizabeth says she wants to know or would like to know what it's like to be a man. Another really weird thing that John does is send her a package after she says that, out of the blue with men's clothes, including a fake mustache to put on. And then she meets him dressed in the get up as a male. And it's played for laughs. I guess. It's not funny, but they kiss each other. So people around them think that it's two men kissing. Again, it's the 80s. Very, very weird. Very spontaneous so-called humour. But uh, the movie itself is highly, highly recommended by me. I really do enjoy it. Even if certain aspects to it outrage me. Yes, outraged. Well, we come to the end. I will mention one more thing. There is a department store scene that is very, very funny. Uh, It involves the pair buying a new bed with the uh, store assistant trying not to watch as John asks Elizabeth to lay down on the bed and, and try the bed and then spread her legs and all these sorts of things are happening and the vase falls off and it's very funny in its own way. And if you listen carefully just before they enter the room to look at this new bed, you can hear over the loudspeaker paging Jerry Bruckheimer in the department store. Yeah, that's right. Paging Jerry Jerry Bruckheimer to the bedding department. You hear that if you have headphones on or a really good sound system, you'll pick it up. Jerry Bruckheimer, of course, is a huge Hollywood producer and he produced Flashdance. Adrian Lyons' film he directed from 1983. A very interesting story, another great soundtrack, and a product of its time, but Flashdance is another movie that I recommend. Maybe you could watch it as a double bill after nine and a half weeks because it is kind of a lighter, funnier, cooler movie than nine and a half weeks and you really do need something to cheer you up after watching Nine and a Half half Weeks. Zelman King, who is the producer and writer of Nine and a Half Weeks, is pretty huge when it comes to sex on film. He has a history of it in his early days, in the 70s. Some of it was softcore porn, but he really hit the mark with Nine and a Half Weeks, and then it followed on with Wild Orchid, another Mickey Rourke film, which is very ill-fated, and we'll talk about it in a future episode of Mickey Rourke Talk. Zelman King also did movies like uh, In God's Hands, which really isn't got much sex in it at all. It's a surf movie. But then on the other end of the spectrum, like I said, Wild Orchid, and a television show called The Red Shoe Diaries, which had a theatrical release in some parts of the world. They put together two or three episodes, made it into a feature, put it on the big screen because it was so huge. Uh, David Duchovny was part of the Red Shoe Diaries. That David Duchovny of the X-Files fame and Californication. So that highly charged sex drama series that David Duchovny was in matches... Previously, Red Shoe Diaries, which he also appeared in, but different generations, a different time. certainly was. I have a poster in my collection of Nine and a Half Weeks, a French poster. It's framed. Used to have glass on it. The glass broke. No glass on it now. I have a habit of that, breaking glass on frames. But I've still got the poster. It's a beautiful French poster of Nine and a Half Weeks. I'll put it online if you look at my social media and I'm very proud to have it. I know where I bought it, in a uh, movie memorabilia place in Sydney that doesn't exist anymore. Very few movie memorabilia places exist anymore unless you get things online. I have a VHS copy of Nine and a Half Weeks, maybe two. I'm not sure, but I definitely have at least one. Big clamshell. Also two copies on DVD, a Region 1 and a Region 4. Uh, different covers but the same content on each disc uh, and i have the soundtrack on vinyl which i cherish and on cd but uh the cd is very scratched so the vinyl takes precedence when love's astray, there's nothing- Well, that was Luba doing The Best Is Yet To Come. That song appeared in the opening credits of Nine and a Half Weeks and uh, it's kind of like irony or a contradiction that the best is yet to come. And for Elizabeth and John, it kind of does come a lot if you want to look at it that way. But the best times they have are very scattered. Their love is true, but honestly, it's not a forbidden romance, but it is technically... Never going to last. The nine and a half weeks was probably about seven weeks too long for Elizabeth. And uh, the way John reacts when she does decide to walk out uh, is priceless, is priceless. He thinks he can get his own way and it's probably the first time he hasn't had his own way for a very long time. And all accolades go to Mr Mickey Rourke in the role and Kim Basinger in her role because absolutely knocked it out of the park. I'm not talking Oscars, but acting is exquisite. Roger Ebert, uh, a very, very popular film critic, wrote at the time, this is part of a long movie review he did on Nine and a Half Weeks, but I thought I'd focus on this. This is what Roger Ebert said. That's what makes the movie fascinating. Not that it shows these two people entering a bizarre sexual relationship, but it shows the woman deciding for herself what she will and will not agree to. And even in the most extreme moments, that is exactly what happens. He he got that right, Roger. Uh, it's worth checking out that review in full. And they're not all positive. This movie wasn't liked by a lot of people, and I can understand why. But personally... I was very young. When I first saw it, I didn't understand a lot of it. I didn't see it when it was first released. I would have seen it when it was on VHS, working at the video shop. And I still was underage, but I managed to watch it. And Mickey just has that great actor appeal I've always looked for when watching movies. And yeah, Kim Basinger, obviously, I knew her too quite well from the James Bond movie and other stuff. Well, that's it. That's it, yes, the first bonus Mickey Rock Talk episode is over. You can listen to all the Mickey Rock Talk podcasts where you find your favourite podcast, but many, many other places, just Google it. You'll be able to hear me somewhere talking movies, whether it be on radio, whether it be on podcasts. But Mickey Rock Talk is on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So I suggest those two. For all my movie reviews and interviews and opinions, if you're interested, you can find me on social media at movie underscore analyst or on my YouTube channel. There's interviews and more more coming. Uh, movie analyst Shane Adam Bassett, you'll find on YouTube if you Google that uh, or email me if you've got a question, if I've forgotten something and I may have in nine and a half weeks or any of the movies I've talked about in Mickey Rourke talk episodes, email me at shaneadambassett at gmail.com. All lowercase, shaneadambassett. That's a double T. There might be some more special episodes focusing on one movie, but for now, I'll just keep with the triple feature Mickey Rock talk shows. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. It's a lot of fun doing these. I'm a little bit uh, spontaneous myself and laid back but uh, that's my style and I hope if nothing else it entices you to check out more Mickey Rourke movies including Nine and a Half Weeks but just don't watch it with a group of people that might be sensitive, definitely not. All hail Mickey Rourke, bye for now. Divorced white female. Beautiful statuesque blonde, witty, cultured. <laughs> Lizzie, this is your mother. Remember me? You should give yourself credit for a lot. You're terrific. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know, have five brothers. And my mother was a clerk at a grocery store. <laughs> I support them. I take care of them. I don't know you. You really don't know me. I can't figure this guy out. I have a present for you. (laughs) We can take off your dress. What? and ask me to leave. I don't want you to leave. Does this excite you? Yes. I will have you. Yes, I will have you. I will find a way. And I will have you. I like to watch you move. Do you like it? Aren't you gonna ask me how I like this? Put them all on. Mr. Love, Is this some kind of game? It's whatever we want it to be. Who do you think you are. You're taking a hell of a lot for granted, aren't you? I think I've been hypnotized. But I never felt anything like this before. How did you know I'd respond to you the way I have? I saw myself in you. Mickey Rourke. Kim Basinger. Nine and a half weeks. Just like the cinematography in the movie, that is all smoke and mirrors, what you just heard. That trailer was courtesy of MGM Pictures. Thank you, everyone. Have a good one. Bye for now. Long live Mickey Rourke.